getting used to all this new technology. I have a new pack on, so it has a different on and off switch, which I'm learning how to use. So, good morning. It's great to be together here in the sanctuary, isn't it? Again, thank you for those of you who helped out. Um, it's good to be in here, but it's even better that we are together. And I know some are viewing in at home. We're glad that you're able to do so. We uh, hope and pray that you stay connected. It's important that we physically are together and growing. This is the whole point of First John, that we're in fellowship in Koinonia. And I'm going to be honest, if you were given notes on the way in, this has kind of been an uh, interesting week for me. If you were given notes on the way in, you can go ahead and take those notes out and kind of rip them in half. Because there's, I'm, 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 I'm growing myself and developing. I'm realizing that sometimes I try to pack too much into an hour and a half time that I'm allowed to speak. And so to, in order for us to move through the next uh, portion of 1 John, I'm going to cut the sermon into two. So part of it you're going to get today, and then you have to come back next week for the better half. And that's all I'm going to say about that. So we're going to break the scriptures down into two portions as I was getting through. I was, I was wrestling with this on Monday, and I thought, no, I can, we can move through this because John does this thing where he repeats himself over and over and over again. Have you noticed that? We're halfway through the book, and he keeps repeating the same themes over and over again. But as I was moving through on Thursday and then Saturday morning finalized, I was just convicted. No, we can't, we can't just move through the first eight verses that we're going to look at. We've got to break this down and go a little bit deeper. So that's what we're going to do. It's interesting, First John I would describe as we're moving through it like a spiral staircase in a lighthouse. Have you ever been in a spiral staircase either going up or down? That's what he does. He keeps looping around three specific themes. And in a sense, he goes deeper and deeper and deeper. But I like to use the illustration of the lighthouse because as he moves around the themes of love, obedience, and truth, you get a higher, broader view of what he's talking about. Yeah, we go deeper, but we see farther. The light shines farther into our hearts and into the world. And so last week, we spent time focusing on what the Bible defines as sin. And you remember my illustration at the beginning of this Jarts, lawn darts as they were called. Thank you for the multiple emails I got from different auctions on where I can purchase my very own lawn jarts. I have not won a set of lawn jarts yet in an auction or purchased them, but working on it. Sin is missing the jart, missing the mark. God has a standard, He has His will. And missing God's standard, his will, is sin. There's no way to redefine it even though the world does that or tries to do it. Every one of us has sinned. It's not a popular topic, but Jesus talked a lot about it. As a matter of fact, he came to rescue us from sin. It was the very purpose he came. So we have to understand how the Bible defines sin, and we have to understand that you and I, we all fall short of God's standard. We all sin. 
John is going to loop back through love and obedience again, but he's going to take a clearer view. He's going to illustrate for us the heart, what the heart looks like in regards to sin, not just missing the mark, but how it manifests itself. And so I want to invite you to stand as I read today's scripture, 1 John 3, we're going to go 11 through 18, and then we'll cover the rest next week. These are the words of God for us today. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Will you join me as we pray, asking God to bless his word this morning? Heavenly Father, we stand for the authority of your word in our lives knowing that our natural hearts do not want to yield to your will. That our hearts are bent away from you. But it is by your grace, Lord, that you enable us to love you and to love each other. Lord, will you help us? Will you lead us to not just love in word or in talk, but in our actions, in deed and in truth. It is for your glory. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. One morning in 1988, Alfred, the inventor of dynamite, woke to read his own obituary in the paper. No, Alfred didn't die, but he wakes up, he grabs the paper, and he reads that he has died. His obituary states, La marchande de la mort est mort. I have no idea without reading this what I just said. But the words are, the merchant of death is dead. 
The article or the obituary went on to say, the man who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before died yesterday. This was true. He knew that he was the man that invented a way to kill more people faster than ever before, but that wasn't the intention of him inventing dynamite. This obituary was printed in air because Alfred's brother passed away the day before. And the journalists confused the names. But what shocked Alfred was how the world viewed him. And how the world viewed him was not the way he viewed himself. He was overwhelmed to a certain degree because the world saw him as the dynamite king, the one who invented ways to kill other people, but that wasn't what his invention was made for. His true intentions were not known by the world. And so this changed Alfred. He set out to make his intentions by the inventions he had and what he did in his life known so that when he died, people would remember him differently than the first time he died. In his last will and testament, he endowed a great deal of money to five annual prizes for outstanding contributors to physics chemistry, psychology, and medicine, as well as peace. This would be the defining expression of his life. This is how you and I would come to know him. The result was this most valuable prize given to those who did the most to cause or help or find world peace. It is called today the Nobel Peace Prize, created by Dr. Alfred Nobel. And now you know the rest of the story. (laughs) And if you don't know what I just did at the end, who was that? Paul Harvey. The rest of the story, which was on the radio years and years and years ago. I used to listen to it all the time. You know, what's funny is... uh, even with knowing the rest of the story and hundreds of people getting the Nobel Peace Prize, the world has found no peace. It's chaos. Darkness and death rule the day. Fear drives the bus. Our world, our world has not found peace outside of one person who didn't receive the Nobel Peace Prize, but is the only one who brought peace on earth. And that is Jesus Christ. The Jesus that we believe is God who came and died to end death, to to bring peace in the soul. This is the good news. This is what John is talking about over and over again in this book about truth, 
obedience, and love. John has told us that loving one another is a matter of light and darkness. And we do not have the capacity in our nature to love each other the way God has commanded. So he sent his son to redeem us back, to see the love of God, and then to be able to respond to that love by loving each other in a manner that is worthy of him. Loving one another is a matter of light and darkness. If you do not love one another, you cannot walk in light. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you sing or what you profess. And now John is going to move higher. Take a higher view. We're going to be taught by John that loving one another is a matter of life or death. The main idea I call in the few verses we're going to look at is the death of death, which I took from John Owens and his book, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. But here, John is saying the death of death is love, but not the way the world loves, not the natural way you and I are born and experience naturally love. There's a different definition of love that the world does not know it does not like as a matter of fact the world hates this love the world's love always starts with i i love and it's a response to what i hate Eternal love, the love that John is talking about, the love that the gospel creates in us, denies the I, which leads to sin. Grab your Bibles and open them to John chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 11. And again, like the spiral staircase, he's going to loop around and repeat some things that he's already said, and then he's going to take a pause And give us a visual illustration to help us understand the point he's trying to make. For this is the message, verse 11, that we have heard from the beginning. John likes to emphasize origin and beginning. He's done this multiple times. Go back to the beginning. Remember the truth you experienced and believed in when you first came to faith in Jesus. Remember the foundations of who God is, who Jesus is, what sin is. This is the message you have been given from the beginning, he says, in our spiritual experience. This originates from God, not from man. This Love that we come to believe and have faith in. This is the message you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. No new information here, it's a repeat. 
But for some reason, John, by the inspiration of God, does not believe that the people he's writing to, the church, the ones he calls beloved, understand. There must still be some confusion at the level of love he's talking about, the distinction between worldly love and the love that God births in the life of a follower of Jesus. Love one another, verse 12 We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. My original thought was to just go with the assumption that everybody kind of gets the basic concept of what he's saying. Because I wrestled with this more, and I jumped into the book of Genesis, and I read the story of Cain and Abel, which I grew up in church listening to. I, I believe we need to camp here, and we need to talk about this. I think this is really important for where our church is, as we've kind of relaunched into a new season at Sun River Church. We kind of launched and then paused with COVID, which was part of God's plan, We need to camp here. I think we need to understand the question, what deeds? What were the evil deeds? Don't be like Cain, who was the evil one. And why did he murder? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. What were the evil deeds? So if you have your Bibles, let's go to Genesis chapter 4. I want to encourage you, if you do not have a Bible, would you talk to myself or John Lopey, any one of our ushers or greeters? It's the inspired word of God. It is supposed to have authority in our lives. More authority than anything else created in this world. More authority than the government, more authority than the news, more authority than Andy, more authority than any human being, God's word is inspired. And the reason why we need fellowship and koinonia in God's word is to hold each other accountable to the truth so that the darkness doesn't rule in our lives. And this is what I want you to see with your own eyes in God's word. Don't take my word for it. I want you to see it for yourself. Genesis chapter four, I'm gonna read this story, verses two to 10. Cain and Abel have both been born of Adam and Eve, sons of Adam and Eve. They have the same parents. And we read in verse 4, now Abel was a keeper of sheep. He was a shepherd. And Cain worked the ground. He was a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. You see what Cain does? He brings some of the produce that he farmed to God as a sacrifice of worship. That's what he's doing. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. He brought some of his flock and offered them as a sacrifice of worship to God. This is what they're both doing. 
worshiping God. Why? Because we were created to worship. You and I do not have the capacity to live and not worship. You need to understand this. From the moment you're born, you begin to worship, just like you begin to breathe. And you can't stop. It's important you understand that one hour a week is not worship, and then the rest of the week is not worship. You were either worshiping God, which you were created to do, but bent away from by sin nature, or you're worshiping yourself, or you're worshiping other people, or you're worshiping stuff. Some of you may be as bad as worshiping Notre Dame football on Saturday. That's my problem. But we were created to worship, and we can't stop. They both bring an offering of worship to God. In finishing verse 4, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. He accepted it. But Cain and his offering, he had no regard. That's not fair. Why would God do that? They both brought their labor to the Lord as a sacrifice of worship. And God accepts one and rejects the other. Why? Why does he do that? Because God sees the intention of the heart. He can discern the thoughts and intention of the heart. His word tells us that he has that ability because he's God and he creates. How do we know that they both had a different heart? Well, we read on in verse 6. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Cain was angry. His heart revealed something that his worship covered. But God wasn't buying it. He knew that Cain had eye at the center of his worship for God. How do we know? Because he was angry. He wasn't remorseful. He wasn't sorry that he missed the mark. His anger proved his own selfishness. And God says, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? Which means, why out of anger are you pouting? By the way, God never asks a question he doesn't already know the answer to. He's trying to help Cain see his heart is desperately wicked. That's why his sacrifice of worship wasn't accepted. Without God revealing it in his word, we wouldn't know. We would think, well, Cain's worshiping God. But God's saying, no, it's false worship. And he exposes the false worship. Why are you pouting? Verse 7, God says, if you do well, if you do what's right, what's righteous, what I require, if your heart is in the right place. By the way, you can't make your heart be in the right place. God has to do it. If you do what is well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not, 
do well. If you have your own Bible, underline this. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. What that means is sin is lurking around every step you take, and it is set against you. Its desire is contrary, but you must rule over it. Your desire is going to lead you into sin. What does Cain do? Verse 8, he spoke to Abel, his brother. Most commentaries say he invited Abel to the field. It says, when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, verse 9, where is your brother Abel? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said to him, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying from the ground. What were the deeds that were evil? At first glance, you, you may think the deeds that were evil were the actions of murder, but that wasn't what was evil. What was evil was the intention of his heart that created that evil act. Do you see that both Cain and Abel came to worship God, one with a heart for God and the other with a heart for himself? Cain was not an atheist. He presented, he was presented as a worshiper. Cain's heart worshiped in a way that focused on what he wanted and what he brought. And when it wasn't accepted, it revealed the selfishness of his own heart. Abel's focus was on what the Lord wanted and what the Lord required. This is the exact words Jesus spoke in Matthew 15. Mark that down and go read those words of Jesus for yourself this week. The people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You know, This is what we want to create here in regards to worship through music and everything at Sun River Church. We are trying to a certain degree, many of you know this, change a culture. I've talked about this. A.W. Tozer talked about this prophetically in the 30s that the entertainment of the United States, of the U.S., is going to ruin the worship of the church. Now, don't get me wrong. We want quality. We want it to be um, professional. But I, I just want to tell you, it's, it's not for you. It's not so, so that we, you get what you want or you like. That's secondary. We're coming here to worship God. That the band isn't here to perform worship for you. I'm not here to, to get an A grade from you. I want you to like the sermon, but I know that if I preach the gospel, some of you aren't going to like it. And I'm not set out to make you not like it. 
We're not here to put on church for you. We're here so that you can fellowship together. And as you come in, you can exalt God. That's biblical. That's from a proper heart of worship. And you can edify each other, which is what the church fellowship is supposed to do. It is not I. It's him and we. I know these are strong words. And again, we want quality. And we're going to use technology and we're going to be good stewards of the resources and the facility that we've been given as long as we have it, which may not be a whole lot longer, who knows, but, but it doesn't matter at the end of the day, we are here to sing about the truth of God, to read about the truth of God, to fellowship together about the truth of God, and to remember what he did for us to draw us into relationship with him. And we are not the center of that, he is. And it's hard I've said this, I don't know if I've said this from the pulpit. It's not in my notes, so you have to just forgive me. We're not a restaurant. Even though, man, it, the, the worship position is the hardest position to hire in the church. That's why I'm taking my time and being very prayerful about it. But this isn't a restaurant. You know, so it's, not, it's what God requires. That's the heart we want. And God Sometimes he likes Mexican food. Sometimes he likes Chinese food. Sometimes he likes Italian food. Well, I'm not going unless they have Italian. I only like Italian worship. I only like, no, no, that's not how it works. We're going to sing the old songs. We're going to sing the new songs. We're going to try and eliminate the distractions. But at the end of the day, we want your heart to be drawn to God's heart. And that's what we want to accomplish. You see, Cain and Abel, they had two different hearts. From the outside, if you didn't know, you would go, wow, they're both, they brought the best. Why didn't God accept them both? Because they each had a different heart. How, what's the difference in regards to their heart? What's the difference between Cain's offering and Abel's offering? Simple, faith. One had faith in their self and their works and what they did. The other was just faith in God. I just want to be acceptable to God. Well, Andy, how do you know that? Well, it's because what the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. Write it down. Go look at it. By faith, Abel offered to God what was more acceptable, a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. By faith, Abel offered to God what God wanted. Verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Whoever wants to draw near to God must first believe that God exists. That's interesting. And that God rewards those who seek him. You see, many scholars believe that God had already given direction on what he wanted in worship. He had already declared, this is a heart of worship. This is what I want. I want you to exalt me. And Cain rejected God's word. He didn't have faith in God's word. He had faith in his works. He had faith in his effort. And he had pride in his effort. And when his effort and his fruit was rejected, he got angry. 
He rejects God's word. Satan is always interested in turning people away from the revealed word of God. He has been doing this from the beginning. Genesis 3.1. Did, did, God, did God really say that? That's not what God said. You, you won't die. You'll be like him. Do you want to be like God? Yes. Eat the apple. Okay. Did they die? Spiritually, yeah. Physically, no. And the world is now in chaos. But God is in control. Satan loves to create false worship. Especially in the walls of the church. Inside the walls of the church should be the exact same as outside the walls of the church. Worship is God-centered, not man-centered. Worship is about exalting again, I've already said this, but exalting and edifying. It's not eat and run. Our hearts, they're worship factories. They create and create worship instead of heeding God's warning. You see what Cain does? Turn back to 1 John. Instead of heeding God's warning, Cain listens to Satan's voice and plots to kill his brother. His envy turned to anger and hatred. That's the domino effect. Envy, anger, hate, murder. He knew that he was evil and that his brother was righteous. And rather than repent and accept God's command, he decides to destroy his brother. Cain's attitude represents the same attitude that the world has towards Christ and to followers of Jesus. The world hates Christ for the same reason Cain hates Abel. The church is called to be light in a dark world. We can't dim that down on Sunday morning so that the world goes, oh, that I like. If we want to reach the lost world, if we want to help people find and follow, which is what God commands us to do, we have to stand on the truth and shine the light of the truth into darkness. And when we do, the world is not going to like that. But some in the world who God has rescued are going to be redeemed back and brought into the fold. This is God's mission. We cannot dim the light. John 15 says, if the world hates you, Jesus' words here, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I have called you or chosen you out of the world 
Therefore the world hates you, verse 13 of 1 John 3. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. He's saying the exact same thing that he wrote in the Gospel of John, which is a quote from Jesus' words. Don't be surprised. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. There's this ancient proverb that states, you can judge a man's character by who his enemies are. And that's true in the spiritual realm as well. The world loves its own. But since Christ chose believers out of the world, the world will hate them. Why? Because light exposes darkness. And those who love the darkness love staying in the darkness. They do not like the light. Light, the gospel, reveals the world's sin and true nature. When the world, like Cain, comes face to face with the reality of sin and the truth about God, it only has one of two decisions. Repent and allow God to transform the heart. John has already said, if you confess, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Or, The choice is anger, and that anger sets out to destroy those who are exposing the truth, followers of Jesus. The darkness is going to want to destroy us for the light. And if we are isolated by ourselves, we will shrink back. This is why fellowship is so important. Pretty strong words. I imagine John's listeners were thinking, I I haven't murdered anyone. Why are you saying that? It's because I don't like somebody doesn't mean I want to kill them. 1 John 3.15, we already looked at. He said, he who hates his brother is a murderer. They've already heard this phraseology. He's taking it a little bit deeper. He's explaining the intention behind the murder. He is talking about what's behind the hate. How do you hate or murder somebody? Resentment. Resentment always leads to insult. Insult always then magnifies injury. Hurts you, hurts others. The only way around this is repentance, exposing to the light. And then sin is always rendered powerless. Sin exposed to the light is rendered powerless. Sin concealed or dimmed will reign in your life every single day. I remember as a kid, 
doing something I shouldn't. Something that I was told I was not allowed to do, and I did it. And I would get in trouble. And I would say to my dad, I didn't mean to. And he'd say, well, you need to mean not to. And I had no idea what that meant until I got older. It's like, well, I didn't mean to, but I really wasn't trying not to do that. This is the intention of the heart. The only difference between murder and hate is the outward act of taking a life. That's what we're being taught here in Scripture. The inward intent is the exact same. Warren Wearsby tells a story of a young visitor that went to the zoo to see the lions. He's chatting with the keeper of the lions, and he says, I have a cat at home. And your lions act a lot like my cat. This is a hard story for me to share because I'm not a big fan of cats. But those of you who are cat lovers, I love you. Paul, Tommy, and I are on the same page here. My cat acts a lot like your lions. See, look, they're sleeping peacefully. It's a shame that you put those beautiful creatures behind bars. When we were in Africa two years ago, we did a little safari, and we came up really close to the lions. You look in their eyes, they have a look. It's not the same look as the, the look at the zoo. There's, there's no bars. The lion keeper says, these may look like your cat, but their disposition is radically different. There's murder in their hearts. You better be glad there's bars there. You see, the question is not so much what did you do, it's what did you want to do? What was your intention? And I didn't mean to doesn't change it. If there were no bars, what would you have done? What was the intention? What kept you from pleasing yourself? And the antidote to this, the antidote to hate in the heart is love. We love because God first loved us. The world does not accept God's love, and so it does not love the same way, even when it looks the same. Through philanthropy and good deeds, the church's love is an eternal love. It is different. It has a different passion, a different focus, a different goal. The death of death is love, and followers of Jesus Christ live to love like Jesus. You see, Jesus came as an example of true love. John is getting ready to make this point as he set up this story about Cain and Abel and hate and the world. He's getting ready to close with this point of Christ's example of what love is supposed to look like. Jesus gave his life for us that we may experience truth. Every follower of Jesus has been transformed into this type of love. People know John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whosoever believes, shall not perish but have eternal life. But do you know 1 John 3.16? 
First John 3.16 is just, if not more important, than John 3.16, one of the most popular verses ever known in our culture. Verse 16, by this we know love. How do we know that God loved us and sent his son? How do we know? He laid down his life for us. This is how we know what eternal love is. Jesus showed us. He laid down his life for us. And we ought. That's the key word. Circle it, ought. To lay down our lives for our brothers. There is an oughtness to love. Listen, it's not, well, I ought to remember your birthday and I ought to buy you nice things for Christmas or I ought to show you my love. No, you show it. You ought to actually do love. Like Jesus didn't just say, I love you so much and I will give my life for you to save you. And then him not do it. We're, we're commanded. We ought to delight in doing good. And we are willing to serve and sacrifice like Jesus. You see, the test of Christian love is not simply not doing evil. It's not being, it's, it's, the test is not, well, I'm going to obey and I'm not going to sin. The test is also doing good. Love's in, love involves action. It involves both a positive and a negative. Isaiah 1 says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove evil from your deeds and from or before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. It is both ceasing to do the negative and learning to do the positive. Verse uh, 17 closes this section by saying, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? We have a model we follow Jesus' example. And if we close our hearts to those who are in need, God's love, how does that abide? See, Christian love involves sacrifice and service. Again, that's different than what the world does. Self-serving is natural in the physical life. There are many people who profess to follow Christ, but they're doing it for themselves. That's why Matthew says, many will stand before me on that day and they'll say, Lord, look at all these things we did. And their act of worship is gonna have no regard to God. He's gonna say, depart from me. No, you were serving yourself. It looked right on the outside, but on the inside, it was about you, what you wanted, what you felt, what you liked, what you did. self sacrifice is natural for the spiritual life. God simply asks us to help 
a brother in need. I want you to notice something. John turns from the brethren group to his brother, personal. This is personal. Because Christian love is personal and active. Ephesians 6, Paul writes this, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, we have opportunity, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the same household of faith. This isn't necessarily doing good in terms of money, even though that's part of it. It's time, it's talent, it's resources, it's multiple things. I'm reminded of an illustration of the young mother who had divulged to some of her friends in the church that she just had no time for personal devotion. With the kids and with the house and all the demands of life, there was just no time. And it was to her surprise a few days later that a few of the older women in the church showed up at her house and said, go into the back room. We will take care of all of this. You go spend time with your father Grow, do your devotion. And over the course of a few of those visits, the mother was able to establish her personal devotion and routine. That is loving one another. Had nothing to do with money, but it had to do with time and a willingness to make a sacrifice. If you want to, listen, listen, walk away with this. If you want to experience and enjoy the love of God in your own hearts, then we must, you must love others, even to the point of sacrifice. Being indifferent to our brothers and sisters means robbing ourselves of what we need even more than anything the love of God in our hearts. And it's a matter of life or death. Verse 18, little children, do not love in word or talk, but in deed and action. James two fifteen, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you say to them, go in peace and be warm and be filled, And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? To love in word means simply to talk about it. But to love in deed means something far deeper. It means meeting those needs spiritually and physically. The death of death is love. Love for God and love for others. God loves us so much that he sent his son to rescue us from selfishness and sin. And so as we close the service, we're going to spend time 
remembering this through communion. As you came in, you were probably given the communion elements. If you don't have them, just raise your hand and we can uh, bring them to you. want to invite you to prepare. Sometimes those are a little bit difficult to open, so you have a second. I've got mine open, and I have a confession to make. There are hands up, so if you're, a, f- a few months ago, I couldn't get it open, and I was leading communion. So I faked it a little. I got a little bit of the juice. I'm stalling a little bit so that those whose hands are up, you can get communion. Listen, the the Lord's table, what we're getting ready to do is loaded with meaning. So don't think simple, low, quick thoughts as we move through this. I want to invite you to do spiritual inventory of the love you have for God in your heart as we remember what Jesus did on the cross to rescue us from sin. The table is loaded with meaning. It is an ordinance. It is a command. This is not a means of salvation. Taking communion does not save you. The scriptures teach that we are saved by grace through faith, not of our works. God does it. This is remembering what he did for us. And I don't want to rush through this, so I want to help you prepare your heart to remember God's love for you. What you think during this time is important. Again, don't think simple thoughts. I want to give you a basic formula on how to think about the gospel as we go to communion. I want to encourage you to think up. Acknowledge that God is center, that he is holy and pure and just and righteous. We celebrate the Lord's Supper as a family together and we look up and consider God as our creator. He's unchanging. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. We're looking up at the holiness and the majesty of God. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's faithful. He's a God that loves you and that loves me. And as you think up, I want you to think in. When you look at who God is and his holiness, you get a better view of yourself. Paul gives direction to look in in 1 Corinthians 11 when he's reminding us to come to the table. He says, let each person examine himself. Then eat the bread and drink the cup. This is an opportunity for you to confess your sin before the Lord. And as you think about your sin and you reflect on God's forgiveness, think back. This is thinking back to the cross, to what God did to redeem us. The Lord's table points us back, Matthew 26. 
It reminds us of his body that was broken and his blood that was shed on the cross and rescues and redeems us back to him. But that's not it. That's not the end. There's there's another thought that's really important, especially during the day and age we're living in, and that's to think forward. When Jesus has his last supper with his disciples, as you read in Matthew 25 or 26, he's, he's talking about where to look, looking up. Look, they don't know what's going to come in a day. But he does make a reference to look ahead in Matthew 26. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You see, we take this. We remember what he did in the past, but we know what he's going to do when he comes again. Jesus anticipates another meal with them. He says he won't drink the cup again until the new kingdom with his people. Think up, think in, think back, think ahead. And as we do this together, remember that forgiveness brings us together to fellowship. This is the heart of the church. This is how we follow Jesus together. Matthew 26 says, Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. Take and eat. Then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. Take and drink. I wanted to invite you to stand. As I read the words of God from John chapter 15, verse 12, and as you hear God speak to you through these words, this or these words are what I want you to take as you leave here today and you enter into a week of worship. John 15, verse 12. This is my command that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends For all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and anointed you that you should go and bear fruit 
and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command to you so that you may love one another.